We have set aside uh, the summer months here at Four Oaks to think together about the nature of our hearts. And the Bible helps us to understand our hearts better if we look to find answers to those questions in, in the Word of God. And what the Bible helps us to see is that before we are thinkers, before we are doers, we are first and foremost worshipers. That's something that we've seen as we've uh, walked through this series together. Love is, is the rudder and the engine of our lives. It determines where we're headed. And the object of our love, the thing that is ultimate to us, the thing we love most, the thing that we prize most, becomes the North Star. It becomes the GPS destination coordinates of our lives. And if that's true, that makes our hearts monumentally important. It's important for us to guard them, to, to, to be watchful about what forms them. Because you see, we are made to love and to live for the glory of God. But sin, when it enters the picture, when it enters our hearts, it results in disordered desires. We saw this the last two weeks. We saw that disordered desire leads us into idolatry. When we look at something that is not God and put it in the place of God as uppermost, as, as highest in our affections. We see that the disordered desire leads us into conflict. Pastor Paul taught us about that last Sunday. But what happens in the gospel when, when God saves us, when he gives us the, the free forgiveness that comes by grace, he gives us a new heart. And in the new birth, something incredible happens. It awakens in us new desires and new loves, loves that are set on Jesus, desires for the things that he loves and for him, for Jesus himself. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the relationship that exists between the gospel of grace, which brings about the forgiveness of sins in our lives, and our expression of worship. So how the change that takes place in our hearts when God saves us leads us to worship him and to love him. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7. We are going to consider... A passage of scripture that I don't know if it's my favorite. You know, I, I told the first service it was it was like in my top three after preaching it in the first service. It's taken over the number one slot. This might be my very favorite passage of scripture. And so if you're willing and if you're able, I want to invite you to stand with me. If you don't have your Bible, that's OK. It's going to be on the screen behind me. We are going to consider together the word of God. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. I heard a pastor say this week that there's more gospel in this passage than anywhere else in the New Testament. And I want us so desperately, I'm so jealous for us to see it and take hold of all that God has for us in this text. So let's ask him to do that as we read. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus, 
answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Jesus, we don't want to miss the gospel. We don't want to miss your grace. We want you to speak this morning through your word, which is holy, it is inspired, it is infallible, it's without error, and it's authoritative in our lives, and so we humble ourselves under it. We ask that you would open up our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to see you clearly and to see the truth that you have for us in this text. We ask that you would do it for your glory and for our joy. And all God's people said, amen. You have your seat. Have a seat, please. If you get the gospel of grace wrong, you'll get worship wrong. You know, you'll not only get worship wrong, you'll get everything wrong. And this is important for us to consider because it's very easy to get it wrong. Okay? There's something very subversive and very scandalous to the human heart when it's confronted with, with this idea of a free gift of God's grace. There's something massively disconcerting for us about the idea that we receive God's love, that God accepts us, that God bestows his favor and his kindness upon us wholly apart from anything that we do to earn it. It's not, that, it's not that we don't know that we need Jesus. We just don't want to need him completely. We want to be able to save a little bit of credit in the salvation equation for us when it's all said and done. We, we don't like to believe that it's all the free gift of God. I think a great illustration of the way that we think about a free gift comes from that, that triumph of, of cinema uh, Back to the Future Part 2. I'm not talking about Back to the Future Part 1 and certainly not Back to the Future Part 3. Back to the Future Part 2. You remember this movie? Have you seen it? If you haven't, go watch it. It's great. You need some Marty McFly in your life. So one of the big stories of Back to the Future Part 2 surrounds this character, Biff. And Biff, uh, particularly in his future iteration, becomes part of the story. So 
in, in the far off distant future time of 2015, right? The time of hoverboards and, and, you know, fancy soda shops and all that. It's right around the corner, guys. Just wait. Old Biff is an old man in 2015. He, he gets this sports almanac that has inside of it all the scores to every professional sporting event and college, major college sporting event through the year 2000. He takes it and he hops in the DeLorean time machine. And he goes back to 1955 and he finds the young version of himself. He finds young Biff. You remember this? And he gives him this almanac and he says, right here, here it is. You can use this to get wealthy. You can bet on the outcomes of games. You'll already know who's going to win and you can get rich. You got to protect this. Here it is. It's for you. It's all right there. You remember how young Biff reacts? What's the first thing out of his mouth? What's the gag? What's the catch? Can't be easy as all that. Free gift. He's cynical and skeptical about it. Maybe a more serious example of this can be found in the story of Les Mis. I don't know if you've, you've uh, seen the movie or, or seen the musical or read the book. I've done all three. Uh, before you, if you haven't seen that one either, watch Les Mis first, then Back to the Future, because it's a great... Yeah, I know this is a lot of homework, and I apologize. But not today, over the next few weeks. Les Mis is, is a fantastic story of grace, and I commend uh, the story to you. But there's, there's one thread in that, in that story that really illustrates this point. There's this man, his name is Javert, and he's an officer of the law, and he's in hot pursuit of this criminal, Jean Valjean. And it becomes his obsession. He wants to catch Valjean and either see him killed or brought to justice. And this pursuit goes on for years and years and years. And then in a, in a twist of, of, of narrative at the, near the end of the, of, the, of the story, Jean Valjean gets the jump on Javert. The hunted gets the jump on the hunter. But instead of, of killing Javert and ridding himself of this problem for the rest of his life, he lets him go. He extends grace to him. And he lets him go free. And Javert, he is a man of the law in every sense. And this, this act of grace, it just doesn't compute for him. It completely blows him apart. He doesn't know what to do with this act of grace. And in, in the musical version of this, it's a powerful scene. He, he sings these words. He says, I should have perished by his hand. It was his right. It was my right to die as well. Instead, I live, but live in hell. Completely incapable of getting his arms around grace, Javert throws himself off the bridge and ends his life. Grace, it's scandalous to our sinful, self-righteous, law-loving hearts. And this presents a problem for us because if we get the gospel of grace wrong, we'll get worship wrong and we'll get everything wrong. And today, Jesus wants us to get it right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this text. There's three major uh, characters in the story, and they'll be our three grace guideposts along the way. The first character is the sinful woman. The second is the self-righteous Pharisee. And the third is the Savior. So we're going to look at this story from each of their perspectives, and then we're going to spend our last few minutes um, just doing some application and thinking about what work of grace God wants to do in our church through this text. So let me set the scene for you. I think it might actually really help us to as much as we can in our mind's eye get ourselves back to that day and imagine what it was like. So imagine it's, it's probably evening. You're in a house. 
in the, in the house, the center, there's a large room. And in the center of that room is, is a table. It's probably circular or maybe oval shaped. It's very low to the ground. And around this table are these, uh, they're like couches or, or large cushions. And they're flat. There's no back on them. And the guests at this party are reclining at the table. They would lay down in that time with their heads close to the table and their feet as far away from the table as possible. Their feet were very dirty. They wore sandals. The roads were dirty and dusty and gross. And so they would, they would lay toward the table and, and, and prop themselves up on their arm and eat with their other hand with their feet away from the table. It was very common in that day for uh, the high society folks like the Pharisees to invite uh, notable religious teachers to come and share a conversation with them. And they would have uh, a big, big lofty conversation about big lofty things. But there would be other people who were present as well. Around the perimeter of this room, there would be people standing. And this was for people who were a step or two lower in the social caste of that day. This would be people who would come interested to learn from these learned men, to hear and to engage with and to receive this lofty discourse that was going to take place around this table. That's the scene. Jesus, Simon the Pharisee, other members of the religious elite are gathered around this table. There are people surrounding them on the perimeter. There's the the din of conversation. People are eating. It's like any other night, but then something completely unexpected happens. An uninvited guest walks into the room. It's the sinful woman, and Luke describes her as a woman of the city who was a sinner. Luke's being pretty clear here. This woman was very likely a prostitute, a notorious person who was very well known In the community, people would have known who she was and what her life was all about the moment she walked in to that room. And this woman, this notorious woman, this this known sinner, walks into the middle of this party of the religious elite. I want to ask you a, a question. If you knew today that when you came in here on these screens behind me, instead of announcements and scripture passages and song lyrics, instead there was going to be a movie playing of your worst moments, your deepest, darkest sins, the thoughts you would just die if anyone ever knew you were harboring in your heart, your lowest moment, that thing that you were involved in that you were just so ashamed of. If you knew that was going to be playing on these screens, would you come into this room? Would you? Would it be worth it for you to meet with Jesus that you would come into this room despite the way everyone was going to look at you? That was what this was like for this woman. She knows exactly what's waiting for her when she walks into this room, but she comes anyway. And now Luke, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly how this happened, but, but the reason why is at some point along the way, she has, she has encountered Jesus. She's, she's heard his message and she's heard about, about this good news that he's proclaiming. Jesus had developed a reputation Uh, He even mentions it in the verses before this one that they called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He eats with them. He he associates with the lowly, with the least of society. And she had she had heard his message. And so she she's compelled by this and she comes. She enters this room and, and we don't know exactly what her intention was. Maybe she just wanted to get a glimpse of him. Maybe she had no intention of anointing his 
his feet, we don't know, but she walks into the room, she takes her place behind Jesus, and, and things start to go wrong. Like an unwatched pot that gets left on the stove, she, she starts to just boil over and bubble over. She begins to fall apart. She's weeping. In the original, this, uh, this word for weeping, it's, it's uncontrollable weeping. It's raining down tears. This is not a, a polite little sniffle and a dab your eyes. This is ugly crying, right? She's crying and, and, and weeping all over the feet of Jesus. She's overwhelmed by the depth of her sin and, and love for this man who's holding out hope to people like her. And it overflows in extravagant worship. Her tears are falling on his feet. And that, this, is, this is a scandal for her to, to, to behave in this way. But it's about to get even more scandalous because the next thing she does, she, she looks down, she's, she's soaked Jesus' feet with her tears and she has nothing to, to wipe them with. And so she quickly lets down her hair and starts to wipe the feet of Jesus with the hair of her head. And if that sounds strange to you, it was strange back then too. A woman's hair was her glory. And there's no way in the world a woman of that time would ever consider letting her hair down in public or even in front of any man who wasn't her husband. I mean, think about, think about the worst social faux pas you've ever committed, right? Have you, did you like, did you guess wrong on like the baby's gender? Like, oh, your daughter is so lovely. Like, it's a boy. Have you done that one? I definitely have. Uh, have you done the whole like, oh, when are you, when are you do? When are you expecting? Ever done like the awkward, like lean in hug and you kind of both go the same direction and your faces come, come real. Have you ever done these? Like think of the worst, the most socially awkward and embarrassed you've ever been in your life. This is a hundred times worse. This behavior is a hundred times Worse, in fact, there were rabbis in that day who taught that if a woman let her hair down in front of another man, that was grounds for her husband to divorce her. She's not done yet. She takes her alabaster flask of, of ointment. It was perfumed oil. This would have been precious. It would have been her most prized possession. It was very costly. And if you remember who this woman was, it would have been incredibly vital to her trade. And she takes the flask and she breaks it and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus. And what I think Luke wants us to see in, in what she's doing here, it's not just that she's giving Jesus adoration and devotion, although she is. She's not just giving a, a, a generous and, and costly offering at his feet, although she is. She's not just serving him and, and, and acting in service toward him, Although she's doing that as well, I think Luke wants us to see that she is laying everything down for Jesus. Everything she owns, her former life of sin, on the ground at the feet of Jesus. It's this beautiful picture of extravagant worship. But Simon doesn't think so. Simon takes note of all this and he is, he is not pleased. In fact, he is revolted by this display from this woman. And to understand the, the distance societally between this woman and Simon, you've got to understand that he was everything that she was not. For all of her outward unrighteousness, all of her outward sin and ugliness, he was on point. 
He was part of the religious elite. He was on his P's and Q's. Simon would have been a tither, a prayer, a synagogue, a tender, a Torah memorizer. If there was a felt board like competition in Sunday school, he won every time. This guy was on it outwardly. But he was no friend of Jesus. We see this in the way that he treated Jesus when Jesus came into his house. In a few verses, Jesus is going to say, you extended me no hospitality. You extended me no love. It would have been customary in that day for when your honored guest arrives, the host would give them a kiss of peace on the cheek. They would have a servant wash their feet. They would take a a bit of olive oil and rub it on their head, anointing their head just as a symbol of honor and hospitality and love. Simon does none of these things because he's a Pharisee. And Pharisees don't love Jesus. Pharisees hated Jesus. Whenever you see the Pharisees approaching Jesus and engaging Jesus, they're insincere questioners of him. They're looking for ways to discredit him and to expose him as a fraud. So it's, it's most likely that Simon invited Jesus for the express purpose of gathering evidence to use against him. And here's Simon, so smug, so self-assured, so self-righteous, feeling simultaneously disgusted by this woman. And at the same time, feeling so vindicated in his assessments of Jesus. He does what so many of us have done hundreds of times. He speaks in his heart. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon is, he's so together. He's so self-sufficient. He's so on point. He's got his stuff so right. But there is no grace in his heart. He doesn't see the ugliness of his own pride, which is just as ugly, if not uglier, than even this woman's immoral lifestyle. Simon reminds me of, of, of Warden Norton from the Shawshank Redemption. Have you guys seen this? Outwardly so devout, so pious, keeping the prisoners of Shawshank under his thumb. He's got like hanging on his wall, the embroidered King James Bible verses about judgment. Outwardly so together, outwardly so on point, but inwardly corrupt and ruthless and vile. Ultimately, his sin gets exposed and he gets his comeuppance in that movie. That's, that's who Simon is. And Simon's thoughts reveal the true nature of his heart. And Simon is, Simon has a real problem. He doesn't understand himself. He doesn't understand this woman. And he doesn't understand Jesus. But Jesus is a prophet. And Jesus does understand who this woman is. And Jesus understands who Simon is too. Verse 40. We turn our attention to Jesus and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I love that. What was Jesus answering? Did Simon say anything? No, he's answering the thoughts of his heart. Guys, just know, just as an aside, Jesus knows exactly what you're thinking all the time. He perceives our thoughts from afar. He is intimately acquainted, not just with the words that we speak, but the attitudes, intentions and thoughts that are in our hearts. Just another proof that he's Jesus. I tried this with, uh, with my wife last night. I read up on it. The, the mentalist.com. It's a real site. I checked it out. 
How do you read somebody's mind? I tried it on Katie. It, it didn't work. If you have better luck with that, let me know. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A denarii is about a day's wage for a worker. And the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Some of your translations will say he graciously forgave them both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. What's Jesus doing here? He's illustrating something really important about Simon's heart. You see, Simon knows the correct answer, but he doesn't see it. He sees, but in seeing, he does not see. You see, the point is there, there are two debtors here. There's one who owes 50 and one who owes 500, but they have something really important in common. And what is that? They can't pay. The debt is too great. They are sunk because of the debt that they owe. There, is, there isn't hope for either one of these debtors to climb out of the hole. And so at the end of the day, does it really matter if you fall into a hole that's 500 feet or 50 feet deep if you can't climb out of that hole? Does it really matter if you get shot in the chest by 500 bullets or by 50 bullets? Either way, you're dead. Either way, you're sunk. Both sinners owed a debt that they couldn't pay. And so the moneylender who is, who is full of grace, the one, who, the one who is owed, the one who extended the line of credit to begin with, absorbs the debt. And we have to understand this. The debt doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just magically fly off into the breeze. You don't wave a magic wand and the debt goes away. Someone pays. Someone absorbs the debt. See what's happening here. Jesus is holding out the gospel to Simon. Simon, you're like this woman. You have a debt that you can't pay. Someone has to pay. But in your self-righteousness, you're missing it problem that Simon has is that at the end of the day, he just doesn't think he's all that bad. This is his problem. And, and can we just talk for a minute? This is so often our problem too, isn't it? We just don't think we're that bad. So often we, we, get, that, we get that we need Jesus, but only in the abstract and not nearly as much as those sinful people over there. We don't get it. Our religious hearts gloss over our own sin, all the while we are so adept at identifying it and pointing it out and judging it in other people. You ever experienced that? The gospel deals a death blow to our self-righteousness and changes the way we relate to God and the way that we relate to others. I I had a real gut check on this yesterday. Last night I'd been thinking about this, praying about this, preparing this sermon. And last night I read an article in a notable um, magazine about a doctor's, quote, abortion ministry. That's what the article called it. He called it an abortion ministry. This is a man who goes to Mississippi to perform abortions for women. And he said, this is a quote, I do abortions because I am a Christian. That's why I do this work. My belief in God tells me that the most important thing you can do for another human being is to help them in their time of need. You grieved by that? 
My soul was grieved by that. It is, that is disturbing and devastating. And in that moment, I had to check my heart. Because my, my lean was, man, that guy is so bad. That guy needs the gospel. And is he bad and does he need the gospel? Yes. But you know what? I need it too. I need it just as bad as he does. The Apostle Paul calls himself what? The chief of sinners. He is the worst sinner in the world in his own assessment. Here's how the arithmetic of this should break down for us when we really get the gospel. I've heard it said this way. You are the worst sinner that you know because you know more about your sin than about anyone else's sin in the world. So if you're the worst sinner that you know, how can you look on other people with self-righteousness? How can you look at other people and say, the gospel is really for them? How can you listen to sermons and say, boy, somebody else really needs to hear that? We need to hear it. The gospel makes us turn away from our self-righteousness and our religiosity and our self-sufficiency. Parents, Here's a question to help you see this in your own life. Do your kids know that you're a sinner? Are you merely just a, a positive example, a, a paragon of Christian faithfulness sent from heaven to show them what a real Christian looks like? So that you can train your kids to grow up to be just like you? Or do your kids know that you are a fellow sinner, a fellow debtor to the grace of God who needs the gospel every bit as much as they do? What are you teaching them? Do you see, as a parent, do you see it as your goal to to just restrain them from sin as much as possible? Or do you see it to be your goal to do all that you can with your teaching, with your example, with the conversations that you have in every aspect of your parenting to teach them what to do with their sin? When the gospel grabs you, When it sets up shop in your heart, it rearranges the furniture of your affections. And it changes the way that you look at yourself, the way you look at Jesus and the way you look at others. And Jesus is saying, look at this sinful woman, Simon. She gets it and you don't because she gets that she's forgiven and you're not. Jesus contrasts the sinful woman's loving worship with Simon's cold indifference. He says, He looks at the woman while still speaking to Simon. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? She's wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, it's important that we don't get this backwards. It's not her extravagant love and worship that earns her forgiveness. What does Jesus say in verse 50? Your faith has saved you. Additionally, both in verse 47 and verse 48, when Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, he uses the the perfect tense. The perfect tense means past action that has continuing effect. He's saying she was forgiven. She is forgiven. She will be forgiven and her lavish love is a marker of that incredible forgiveness she's received and then jesus boils it down to the point so simple but so easy to miss the one who is forgiven little loves little that's simon's problem and it's ours
Jesus is just devastatingly concise and clear. How much have you been forgiven? Do you know that you're a great sinner? Do you love Jesus? Do you love what Jesus loves? Simon didn't. And this woman did. And as the people around the table react to this incredible scene that's just unfolded in front of them, asking each other, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus holds out this beautiful gospel coda to the whole story. He turns to the woman, he says, your faith has saved you so you can go in peace. That's the fruit of receiving lavish forgiveness, lavish love, peace with God today, tomorrow, and forever. That is good news, amen? If you miss the gospel, if you get the gospel of grace wrong, you'll get worship wrong, and you'll get everything wrong like Simon did. I want to spend our last couple of minutes just doing some application. I want to ask you two questions, very simple as we seek to apply this truth to our own hearts. The first question is, obviously there's, there's three characters in the story, the sinful woman, the self-righteous Pharisee, and Jesus. Who are you in the story? Hopefully you know you're not Jesus, right? If you ever are interpreting a passage of Scripture and you see yourself as Jesus, hit the pause button. Step back, start over. So are you a Pharisee? Are you a sinful woman? Which is it? We've laid out the criteria for how you make that assessment. How much have you been forgiven and how much do you love? If you're a Pharisee, Jesus turned to Simon the Pharisee and he said, I have something to say to you. And I think he has something to say to you and to me as well. And it's this, repent of your self-righteousness. Stop trying to earn the favor of God through your goodness. Jesus wants to tell us and to take us back to the story of the gospel that we stand guilty before a holy God. We have rebelled in our actions, our attitudes, the intentions of our hearts. And if God were to give us what we justly deserve, we would know his judgment eternally, separated from him in hell. But in love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life of perfect obedience to God's law, a life we could not live. And then he allowed Jesus to go to the cross, to be betrayed, to be beaten, to be humiliated, to be stripped of his dignity, and to be murdered on the cross where he absorbed and received the wrath of God that burned justly against our sin. And everyone who trusts in him, everyone who repents of this message, who repents of their own righteousness, can experience the lavish forgiveness of God. That's the message of grace. Every week we want to help you be reminded of this story. Even when when we gather as a church, we structure our services to walk through this story. We begin with the holiness and the grandeur of God. Then we acknowledge together that we're sinners who have failed to live up to God's standard this week today and in this moment, but then we celebrate together the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. 
And I just, just let me let you off the hook here. You may feel like, I, I, can't, I can't admit that I'm a sinner. What about all these righteous people around me? <laughs> no righteous people in this room. Everybody in this room is a sinner. The person on your left is a sinful woman. The person on your right is a sinful woman. The guy on the stage is as well. Nobody stands before God on the basis of their own righteousness and stands. So just be who you are. Receive this free gift of grace. Soren Kierkegaard said the most common form of despair is just not being who you are. Just be who you are. It's okay to be messed up. Everybody in the room's messed up. You know, if, if you're a Pharisee, I want to say this to you as well. I, I really relate to you. I get being a Pharisee. I was, I was raised in a, in, a, in a wonderful Christian home to godly Christian parents and professed faith in Christ from a very early age. Uh, and there was a season in my life in my late teens and early 20s where my affection for the Lord was almost just completely not there. I was outwardly so righteous, so pious. I was in church every Sunday. I wasn't doing all the things that those sinful people over there were doing. I wasn't um, chasing sinful relationships. I wasn't you know, doing all the things that we think of as really bad. But in my heart, I just I had no affection for the Lord. I was living a completely self-absorbed lifestyle. My heart was full of judgment toward other people. I would compare my strengths to the weaknesses of people that I saw around me to make myself feel good. You ever done that? Isn't that gross? That was my life. For a long season in my life, if you had seen me on a Sunday, seen me singing in church, you would have said, there is not a man who's forgiven much because he sure doesn't love much. And if you really knew me, you saw my life, you'd say the same thing. But Jesus, Jesus was relentless in his pursuit of me. And there wasn't a particular moment when, when the light bulb came on for me. There wasn't a specific time that I can think to, think back to and say, that's when I really got it, when the gospel just arrested my heart. But it was just over a period of time, listening to the word of God, being poured into by, by brothers in Christ who loved me and didn't want to let me go. I was like Pastor Paul and Alan Iverson and Ben Steigner and, and dear brothers, Tim Duff, Aaron Howard, my, my godly Christian roommates just continued to hold out the gospel to me through their lives, through their words, through their love. And eventually I saw it. And I repented of my self-righteousness. I heard Ray Cortese say that Jesus is a great discipler. I think that's really true. He was for me. And he can be for you as well if you're a Pharisee. Are you a sinful woman? Know that Jesus loves you and accepts you. And if you're trusting in him, you have peace with God and full forgiveness because of his incredible grace. So who are you? Which are you? My second question is this. What does your expression of love say about the forgiveness that you've received? You could say this another way. What does your worship say about your gospel? Jesus is crystal clear. When grace captures your heart, when you become aware of the depths of your sin and the incredible grace that he's given to you, 
It generates a response of love and worship. So what is our worship for, Oaks? What does your worship individually say about the gospel that you cling to? I believe that the Spirit of God wants to invite us today to take a step forward into a more, a more full and a more deep expression of our love for Jesus. And I'm not saying, let's, just, let's become more charismatic. We just all just need to let ourselves go or get loose. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. I believe God wants us to behold the beauty of Jesus. And in beholding him, to respond out of the freedom that we have. To respond with extravagant worship. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that we're bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God with our body. I think God wants us to, to be expressive with our bodies when we respond to this great gospel truth. He wants us to respond with our whole selves. To sing loud, to shout, to like, Lord forbid, say amen during the sermon, right? Can we get one of those? An amen? Amen. amen. To lift our hands and, and to kneel in response to this incredible truth. Of the forgiveness that we've received. Now listen. Some of you might say. Well, well I do all that stuff. I just do it in my heart. <laughs> well. Okay. And I, I think there's room for personality. God wants you to respond as, as who you are. And how he's made you to be. But if that's the first place you go. I just want to ask. Do you respond like that in some other place? Is there another place? Maybe. Maybe on a, sun, a Saturday afternoon. Where your hands go up. And you shout. You revel in awesome news. All I'm saying is this, guys. Let's give Jesus our best affections. There's nothing that could be more worthy of our best affections than the God who's forgiven us of our sins. Jonathan Edwards said this. Can we Christians find anything worthier to respond to with all our affections than what is set forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can anything be worthier to affect us than this? The answer is no. Nothing could be more worthy of affecting us than this. Now the way to think about this, let's say a group of, of Martian anthropologists showed up and they didn't know anything about you or about Four Oaks or about humanity and they just followed us around for a week and then they watched us worship together. What would our worship say about what's captured our hearts. You know, I read an article this week called Nine Reasons People Aren't Singing in Church. And I won't give them all to you, but here's just a few of them. People don't know the songs. Worship leaders are picking songs that are too hard to sing. There's no common hymnody. Worship leaders ad-lib too much. And it sort of goes on and on. And it's basically a list of all the things that worship leaders need to do better. And look, I'm not, I'm not trying to be Simon the Pharisee here. I know that there's probably a lot of those things really are true. I want to come under that and receive it. But I think he misses the greater point. I think we aren't singing because we don't see the beauty of Jesus. Because the one who's forgiven little loves what? Little. You know, I'm, I'm so jealous for you. Your elders are so jealous for you to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus and then to respond. That we would sing loud, that we would clap and raise our hands and that we would respond out of the freedom that we have 
in Jesus Christ. To glorify him and to enjoy him together. And I could, I could stand here and read you off passage after passage, verse after verse, of where the Bible says we should clap our hands, we should raise our hands, we should sing, we should shout, we should kneel. I could do that. And there's a time and a place for that. But I don't want to take you to God's commands. I think that would miss the heart of God in this passage. Instead, here's what I want to say to you, church, to encourage you toward that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Respond because you've seen the beauty of Jesus and because you've drunk deep from the wells of God's unbelievable, scandalous grace. What's the gag? What's the catch? No gag. No catch. Repent and believe this good news. Receive the free forgiveness that comes by grace. You have been forgiven much, and so respond love much.